wonderful. I hope you guys have all had a fantastic day. Um, I've been here for uh, how long in Northern Ireland now? 36 hours. It seems to me that the sun always shines in Northern Ireland. It's amazing. It's what, I, 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 I don't know. That's what it seems. Um, it's been amazing just hearing this evening everything that has been shared on this stage. It's a real privilege. It's an honor. It's humbling uh, to be speaking after all that has been shared uh, this evening so far already. A few of you have come up to me asking me today um, to say, actually, what do I do now? Um, I spoke last night in, in the interview briefly about how I used to be a minister at All Souls Langham Place. I used to be a minister at Holy Trinity Brompton. But what do I actually do now? It's a very good question. Let me just quickly let you know that. Uh, for the last five years, um, I've served at Holy Trinity Clapham, a church uh, in London, uh, and uh, for the last year and a half there as the rector at Holy Trinity Clapham. It's a church... No reason you know it, but it's a church uh, with an inspiring past. Uh, It's where William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, where they worshipped around 1800 as they worked for the abolition of the slave trade. So it's a real privilege to be working, serving in a church with such an amazing uh, past. And um, uh, back then, it was, if you like, it was sort of the All Souls or the HDB of its day. Uh, It was absolutely packed. It had loads and loads of people going along to it. Um, it planted churches regularly. Now, it, it's, it's nothing like that now, but by the grace of God as a church, it has grown a little bit in, in recent years, and uh, we pray that it has uh, an exciting future as we depend on Jesus and are empowered by his Spirit. Now, um, last night, uh, we looked at the first half of Paul's letter to Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, and tonight we are looking at the second half of Colossians, so chapters 3 and 4. I'm going to read... Uh, Colossians 3 and verses 1 to 17. If you want to turn there uh, in your Bibles or on your phones, wherever it is. Uh, Colossians 3 verses 1 to 17. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians in the New Testament. Colossians 3 and let me read it. It goes as follows. Paul writing and he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. So uh, as, we, um, as we move tonight into chapters 3 and 4 of Paul's letter, we are reminded straight away that Christ in you, the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, he transforms you and me. You remember last night, I said our, our sort of theme verse uh, that we're looking at over last night, tonight, and tomorrow is Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That definition, if you like, of the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And first, what we see is that our status is transformed. Christ in you transforms our status. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Or or look at verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. So we thought last night about how we are full in Christ. We are not lacking in any way. And here we're seeing we are raised with Christ. We are hidden with Christ. Our status has been transformed as Christians. So the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, resident in you, transforms your status. But Christ in you also transforms not just our status, but our desires. And here's the difference. While our status, while our status is transformed in one instance, as we become a Christian, Christ comes to live in us by his Spirit. In Christ, we are full, our, our new status as Christians. Whilst that is in one moment in time, actually our desires as a Christian, they are transformed, not at just one moment in time, but they are transformed over time. And that is why you and I, we each need the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Christ, we are filled. We go on being filled by the Spirit. And as the Spirit continues to fill us, he changes our desires over time. So have a look, would you, at verse 2. Verse 2 says, set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Now, now what this verse doesn't mean is that we shouldn't think about these sort of everyday earthly things like work or like marriage. It doesn't mean that because uh, later in this chapter we'll see Paul gives very strong and very practical advice about work and about marriage. So verse 2, it's not saying don't be involved in sort of the everyday things of this earth. Now to understand verse 2, we need to look to verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly, that same word, earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And you've got that same word, earthly, in verse 2, and then here in verse 5. So when Paul's saying, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, he's saying, don't set your minds on the things that belong to your earthly nature, such as the things in verse 5. And and actually, when he finishes verse 5, if you look at the end of that verse 5, that last little phrase, he says, which is idolatry. Actually, the grammar of that sentence is best understood as the whole of verse 5, is seen to be idolatry. Not just greed, but the whole of verse 5. In other words, we're being told, don't have idols. Don't have earthly things that take the place 
of God. Don't have things that we desire more than God. Don't have idols. A couple of years ago, I was, um, I was driving our, our two eldest children, Daisy and Boaz, uh, to school and driving across um, Clapham Common from one side to the other where their school was. And as we did that, we, we passed by um, Ladbrokes, the betting shop. Daddy, what's Ladbrokes? Piped up Daisy. It's a betting shop, I said, where, where people gamble. Is it wrong, she said. Uh, And so I started to talk to her about how uh, some things uh, were addictive and that once you did them once, you sort of kept on wanting to do them more and more. So I said, gambling's a bit like that. It's addictive. It's a a bit like smoking cigarettes, I said. So Daisy replied. She said, said, I'm addicted to my guinea pigs. (laughs) And so I tried to sort of explain that that generally when one uses the word addicted, uh, it's something that is bad uh, that someone keeps on wanting to do more and more. But sort of rather getting into the swing of the conversation, you know, I'm a vicar, I'm always on the lookout for a good illustration. Uh, I continue by saying that sometimes, Daisy, you're right. Sometimes even good things like guinea pigs can become such a large focus for us that we set our hearts on them more than God. And that God should be our number one addiction. Now, Daisy rather liked this idea of a number one addiction, so she started compiling her her top ten addictions. Uh, Number one, she said, number one is God. She's a vicar's daughter. She knows the right answer. So number one is God. Uh, Number two, she said, in her top ten addictions uh, is Pumpkin, who's our guinea pig. Number three addiction is Mummy. Uh, Number four addiction is Patch. That's Boaz's guinea pig. Uh, And so the list went on with me getting more and more and more offended as I eventually came in. I came in number nine in her addiction list. Number nine. But, you know, all the time this had been going on, as we were driving in the car to school, um, Daisy had been talking with me, but Boaz had just been sitting there, just quiet, unlike him, but quiet, uh, listening in on the conversation. He said absolutely nothing. But then he decided to enter into the conversation. He just said this. He said, I... I'm addicted to me. <laughs> now, 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 in that one sentence, uh, my eldest son had managed to define perfectly the problem that each of us has. Being addicted to ourselves. Setting our hearts, setting our minds on ourselves. And so the question that I'd love for each of us just to think on this evening is what have we set our hearts and minds on, connected to ourselves, uh, what have we set our our minds on? What are our our me addictions? What are those things that that knock God off top spot on the addiction list? Might be being married. Might be buying a house. Might be having a single-digit golf handicap. Now, of course, those are all good things, but the problem comes when they take the place of God. And what happens is is when good things, when good things become God things, then they become bad things. And that'll often lead to the list of verse 5 of sexual sins. It'll lead to the list of verse 8 of verbal sins. And so Paul, he says to us in verse 5, he says, put to death those things. Put to death sexual immorality, lust. He says, verse 8, rid yourselves of these things. Rid yourselves of anger and rage. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we put to death those things? How do we get rid of them? How do we have our desires transformed? 
You see, too often we tend to think that it's something we must do merely in our own strength, in our own effort. But that's not it at all. In fact, you know, the translators of the NIV version of the Bible made exactly this mistake. Uh, you know how there are, in the NIV version there are various sort of headings in the Bible. They're not the inspired word of God, but they are the, what the translators think are, if you like, good summaries of the next bit of Scripture. Often they're very helpful. But if you have an older version of the NIV Bible, you will see at the start of Colossians chapter 3, the heading there is rules for holy living. Rules for holy living. Rules. External rules that we have to strive to obey in our own strength. But if you've got a more recent version of the NIV, they've realized they've got it wrong. And so they've changed that heading at the start of of, of chapter 3 of Colossians. They've changed it to living as those made alive in Christ. And you know, the reason they got it wrong, I think, was that they forgot the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ in you and me. Just look, would you, at verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. It says, we put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So it's not just us trying in our own strength to follow rules, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be kind. It is Jesus Christ working in us. It is Jesus, verse 10 says, renewing us. If you like, it is Jesus rewiring us by his spirit internally. Some people love long walks. I am not one of them. I prefer a short walk or no walk at all. Um, But the few times that I am forced into going into a long trek, uh, the part that I enjoy most is the bit just after lunch. Because in the morning, as you trudge along, all your food and your drink is in your backpack. It's a burden. It weighs you down. But when you stop for lunch, you eat and drink all that you are carrying. No longer is the food external. Now it's internal. Suddenly, the very thing that was a burden to you, that was weighing you down, suddenly now it is firing you up. It's inside you. It's energizing you. It's helping you to keep going. And similarly, the Holy Spirit takes what did feel like rules that we couldn't keep and he puts them in our hearts and he writes them on our minds and we don't suddenly become perfect as Christians but we do have Christ's empowering presence within us, rewiring us. Verse 10, renewing us, transforming us from the inside out, transforming those desires of ours so that we are increasingly living with the clothing of verse 12, with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, with love, if you like, as our overcoat. And when we begin to more and more live like that, we begin to transform the world. Just look, would you, at verse 17, the last verse that I read out earlier. This is what we're going to sort of focus on for most of the rest of the time. Verse 17. Verse 17 says this. It says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, if I've been speaking so far on how Christ in you 
Christ resident in you transforms you and me. We now need to, if you like, switch our attention to how Christ in you transforms the world through you and me. How does the Holy Spirit transform the world through us? I wonder if you've read uh, this article before. Uh, The Advertising Standards Commission has rejected a complaint lodged by Bob Weller of Carlisle against Beecham's Pharmaceuticals regarding claims made on the packaging of their Mr. Muscle product. Now, according to the adverts, kitchen and bathroom cleaner Mr. Muscle loves the jobs you hate. You'll remember the advert. He loves the jobs you hate. But Mr. Weller says that this is just not the case. Mr. Weller said, I took a bottle of Mr. Muscle into the office where I work as a chartered accountant on a day when I had some particularly tedious jobs lined up. Uh, Firstly, I've been asked to prepare a quarterly sales summary for a client in Ramsgate. I expected this to take most of the morning, so I sprayed the keyboard of my computer with a liberal coating of Mr. Muscle and went to the toilet where I slept until 11.30. Now, compiling quarterly summaries for large companies is one of the worst things about my job. I hate it, in fact. So I'd expected Mr. Muscle to have done a great job because he loves the jobs you hate. Yet I was astonished when I returned to my desk and discovered that he hadn't even started. That afternoon, I was scheduled to interview graduates for a junior position within the firm. Now, if there's one thing I hate more than quarterly summaries, it is interviewing students. Uh, So I again decided to leave it to Mr. Muscle. I squirted him all over the conference room on the second floor. I left the bottle on the table and asked my secretary, Miss Harris, to usher in the candidates when they arrived. When I returned from the pub about four hours later, (laughs) I was sure that Mr. Muscle would have at least prepared a shortlist for a second interview. But had he indeed? He was on the table where I'd left him. He'd taken no notes whatsoever, and all of the students had gone. I was furious, continued Mr. Weller. John Ramsey of the Advertising Standards Commission said in a statement, Bob Weller is a nutter. (laughs) Mr. Weller has been sacked by his company and has a number of complaints to the Advertising Standards Commission awaiting review, including one against Cadbury Confectionery, claiming that he has yet to find romance with a female rabbit despite eating 40 caramels in one week. Now, Bob Weller totally, totally misunderstood the purpose of the Mr. Muscle product. Completely missed the point. We laugh at his complete and utter stupidity. We know that none of us could possibly be that stupid. You know, my fear is that actually many of us are. And I know I am. Because we often totally misunderstand the purpose of something that is far more important, far more significant than Mr. Muscle. In fact, we misunderstand two things. We misunderstand the purpose of this, New Horizon. And even more than that, we misunderstand the purpose of the Holy Spirit. You see, the primary purpose of New Horizon is not so that you have a wonderful time Lots of great experiences of the Holy Spirit at work in you, and you long to come back here next year. Now, I hope all those things are true. Don't get me wrong. I hope all those things are happening. But here is the primary purpose of this week. It is for you and I to go back home from here, 
to your work, to your college, to your neighborhood, to wherever God has placed you, and for you to go feeling increasingly equipped and empowered by the Spirit to live for Jesus each and every day. Because the mission that you and I have been given is clear. We are to represent Jesus to the world. We are to make a difference for Jesus wherever we are. Just look at that phrase in the middle of verse 17. It says, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That idea of, uh, it comes with the the idea that we are the Lord Jesus' representatives here on earth. You and I, we are Jesus' representatives. I wonder if ever you've had to go to a a meeting in in a place of somebody else. You are representing that person at that meeting. And that is why we get all these practicalities in this passage in chapter 3. All these sort of practical points that Paul is talking about, they're not ways to earn salvation. They're not sort of ways to get brownie points with God. Now if you look at verse 12, we are already, verse 12, we are already God's chosen people. We are already holy and dearly loved. That is who we are in Christ. Now, all these practicalities throughout chapter 3, they are here to help you and I be good representatives of Jesus. And it involves all of us. It involves our life and our lip. That verse, verse 17, whether in word or deed, life and lip. It it encompasses all of life, uh, whatever we do, whether in word or deed. And that's why in chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians, Paul is being intensely practical. He is spelling out what it looks like for you and I to have Jesus Christ as Lord in all areas of our lives. Just for a moment, just walk through with me chapters 3 and 4, would you? Chapter 3, if you look at it, verses 1 to 11, that is Jesus as Lord in our personal life. Go down a bit further, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, that is Jesus as Lord in our relationships with other Christians. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, what does it look like for Jesus as Lord in our family relationships? Go down further, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, what does it look like to have Jesus as Lord in our work relationships? Chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, what does it look like to have Jesus as Lord in our relationships with those people who aren't yet Christians? Our mission, your mission is to represent Jesus to the world. To represent Jesus to the world. Wherever we are, wherever we go. Now if that's our mission, here's the mistake that we often make. Last night I talked about second-rate Christian syndrome and stuck-in-a-rut Christian syndrome. Tonight the mistake is double life. Christian syndrome. Double life Christian syndrome. See, the danger is when when God looks at us, he sees two different people. He sees us living in one way in one situation and then another very different way in a different situation. We, We lack integrity. We are disintegrated. Let me give you a couple of of personal examples. Here's one. Me today. Okay, me today. I was um, sort of after the seminars this morning around lunchtime. I, I was pushing a buggy 
uh, with our youngest, Theo, in it. Uh, he's one. And then our second youngest, uh, Hope, she's three. She was sort of perched, sitting on top of this buggy in a very sort of precarious, totally unsafe kind of way. And uh, there I was, pushing this buggy, trying to sort of make sure that Hope didn't fall off the buggy. And uh, someone walked put, put past, and he, and he said with a big sort of big broad grin on his face, he said, well, that's a relief. You're human. And I think what he was meaning was, I think, he was meaning you may be this sort of shiny church pastor up the front, but at least your parenting is chaos. <laughs> and you know what I thought as he said that to me? I thought, actually, you should have seen me in the car this morning. You should have seen me in the car this morning driving here because I was getting angry and shouting at the children. I was getting angry with Susanna. I was cross with them. You know, up here, I can seem totally, like, you know, sorted church pastor, but that's double-life Christian syndrome. Me today. Or how about me a few years ago, when I, back when I was a management consultant? I'll never forget uh, this time when... Um, uh, the t- department that I was a part of. Uh, we were on a two-day sort of team-building time in the Cotswolds, and there were about 15 of us there. And at one point in the program, in this two-day program, there was one hour in the program. And in this hour, what we had to do was we had to spend five minutes in a pair with somebody else that we worked with. And in those five minutes in the pair with this one other person, we had to tell the other person how we saw them. So we had to say to them what their strengths were, and then what their weaknesses were, and then they said it to us as well, and after five minutes we swapped, and then we went to the next person that we worked with on the team, and again, all through the hour, so you got through however many that is, 12 people. It was a nightmare, I tell you. When, when, you, when you had the boss uh, trying to work out how to sort of put her weaknesses politely, was, that was a challenge. But I'll never forget what one person said to me in that five minutes. He, he said the nice things. That's always the way, isn't it? People, they, they say the nice things first, they butter you up, and then they dropped the bombshell. And that's what this chap did. He said the nice things. And then he said this to me. He said, Jago, Jago, you are too focused. You're too focused on whatever you're doing. He said, often I will come and I will ask you a question. And you'll give me the answer. But you're not interested in me. You don't just ask me how, how I am. You don't just chat to me. Jago, you are too focused. And I remember that hit me. Here was me at the time, as far as I'm aware, the only Christian in that small department. And I'm being told by someone that I am not interested in how other people are. That I haven't got time for them. You know, at the time, I was probably thought to be fairly loving, fairly caring in the church that I was in at the time. But totally disintegrated. Here was me in the workplace... And this guy was telling me that I lived as though I didn't have any time for him. I was living a double life, double life Christian syndrome. You see, all of us, we have heroes in our Christian faith. And your heroes will be different to my heroes. But I would wager that what makes them heroes to you is above all their integrity. That the the double life Christian syndrome is at a minimum. That we are attracted by the fact that in their life, what you see is what you get. Let me give you one example for me. And I mentioned him yesterday, John Stott. 
John Stott, he was the pastor, the theologian, the evangelical statesman. His parish was the world. His home was All Souls Langham Place. Uh, He died in 2011, I think it was. Uh, He was someone I had the privilege of being able to call a colleague for five and a half years. He, He felt like my spiritual grandfather. And through his writings, he has made a greater theological impression on me than any other author outside of the Bible. Tim Keller runs him close, but, uh, you know, but I think probably John Stott, the most impact on me. And yet, the reason why he is my hero is actually not so much because of his writings, but it's because of his integrity that I witnessed as I got to know him. In a book that someone wrote about him after he died, they said this, they said, like a seaside stick of rock, he was the same all the way through. It seemed that wherever you might break him open, the lettering would be the same. The message of his life and his words was consistent. And that was my view too. Integrity, it is so attractive. I love this quote from um, uh, John Venn. John Venn uh, did the same job that I did. Uh, I do now, actually. Not I did. I haven't been sacked yet. Um, he, did, he does the same job as I do. He was rector of Holy Trinity Clapham, John Venn. Uh, but back in 1800, when William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect uh, were worshipping there. And John Venn preached these words. He said this. Religion is not merely an act of homage paid upon our bended knees to God. It is not confined to the closet and the church, nor is it restrained to the hours of the Sabbath. It is a general principle extended to a person's whole conduct in every transaction and in every place. I know no mistake which is more dangerous than that which lays down devotional feelings alone as the test of true religion. Till our Christianity appears in our conversation, in our business, in our pleasures, in the aims and objects of our life, we have not attained to a conformity to the image of our Savior, nor have we learned his gospel aright. And so if our mission is to represent Jesus to the world, And if our mistake is to lead a double life lacking in integrity, what is our motive? What is our motive to be people of integrity as Jesus' representatives of the world? Well, look again, would you, at verse 17? And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that last phrase giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. The motive we have to represent Jesus to the world, the motive is Jesus, the one that we serve, that we are so thankful to him, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. There's that story of the, uh, of the famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, talking to a maid in his house who'd recently become a Christian. And Spurgeon asked the maid what evidence she could give of having become a Christian. And rather timidly, she replied, well, sir, I now sweep under the doormats. It's a great answer. Her earthly boss would not have known if she'd swept under the doormats or not. But her heavenly boss, Jesus Christ, he knew. And this maid knew who she was ultimately serving. A few verses further on, verse 23, Paul says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
You see, it is who Jesus Christ is. It is all that he has done for us. That is our motivation. You can see it clearly in verse 13. Paul says, forgive. There's a practical thing. He says, forgive. Forgive. Why? He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Jesus is our motivation. But finally, remember the means. The means. How do you and I represent Jesus to the world? How can we do it? Well, above all, it is through a spirit-empowered inner life. You see, when our life with God, it is not, when it is not sufficient to sustain our work for God, then we will find ourselves struggling with our integrity. Wherever it is that you are working for God in your workplace, in your university, in your church, amongst your friends, amongst your community, amongst your family, it will only be viable in the long term when it is fueled by your inner life with God. Just look at the context for verse 17 that we've been looking at. The context is obviously verse 16, what comes before it. This is verse 16, Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And then he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed. You see, you and I, we will only be good representatives of Jesus to this world if our inner life with God, in hearing from God in his word and in us talking to God in prayer and giving him worship in song, if that inner life is sufficiently fueling us. But I'd love you to note this. I wonder if you've ever seen this before. Just um, up on the slide, it's going to come chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then he talks about psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Then he talks about this bit that we've been looking at in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him. And then verse 18, he talks about this bit about wives and husbands. And I wonder if you've ever compared that bit to the parallel passage in Ephesians. Ephesians, another letter that Paul wrote at the same time as Colossians. And in Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 22, it goes like this. Paul writes to the Ephesians also about psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Next, he writes also about giving thanks to the Father in the name of Jesus. Next, he writes about wives and husbands. Now, the parallel is striking, isn't it? Written two letters at the same time, same order of things. But what does Paul say before all that to the Ephesians? Where he says to the Colossians, where he says to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, what does he say to the Ephesians? He says, be filled with the Spirit. He says, go on being filled with the Spirit. One time Paul speaks of the Word, the other time of the Spirit, reminding us of that close, intimate relationship between Word and Spirit. Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform us, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the world through us. There'll be some people here this evening and you know that you are living a double life. You know that quite a lot of the time you're living a double life. You're not being a great representative of Jesus to the world. And maybe this evening God has been challenging you about the lack of your integrity. 
Perhaps between how you are in public and how you are in private. Perhaps between how you are at work and how you are at church. Perhaps this evening the Holy Spirit has been doing his work of conviction in you. And it would be wonderful to pray for the Spirit to continue to transform you so that you might be increasingly used by God to transform the world. And then there'll be others of us who who perhaps not so much leading a double life, but you're unsure whether God is that interested in your life and all you do. And I want to say above all tonight, please know that you can represent Jesus to the world in your own setting, however small or feeble you might feel. Look at what Paul writes in verse 11. This is the last verse we're going to look at. He says this. He says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So in in that verse, we see that as Christians, there's no hierarchy, no, no racial hierarchy, Greek or Jew, no religious hierarchy, circumcised or uncircumcised, no class hierarchy, barbarian or Scythian, no job hierarchy, slave or free. We're all equal in Christ. God is interested in us all equally, whatever job we may have, whatever background we may have, whatever our relational status, whatever our age, whatever spiritual gifts we may or may not have. And whoever we are, every single one of us here who is in Christ, we can be amazing representatives of the Lord Jesus in our own spheres, empowered by the Holy Spirit. End of verse 11, Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all and is in all. That has been the message of Colossians. Christ is all. Christ is everything. He is all we need. We have all fullness in him. And Christ is in all. By the Holy Spirit, resident in us. Resident in every single person who trusts in Jesus. And what we have seen tonight is that the one who is in us, he is in us not just to transform us, but he is in us to work through us, inside out, to transform others. As Simon Ponsonby has written, he says, The Spirit is God inside out to bring those outside in. He's God inside out to bring those outside in. Let me finish by telling you about two people. The first is a a friend of mine called Rupert. Uh, Rupert was a student uh, and a Christian. uh, And he was talking uh, about Christian things to a friend of his in the student bar in the run-up to a series of Christian talks. And unbeknownst to him, another guy was listening in on the conversation. It was sort of quite a a cool sort of druggy architect. You know the type. Uh, And this this architect called Tim, he, he didn't say anything at all But he was intrigued by what he was overhearing Rupert saying. And so this guy, Tim, he went and bought a copy of the Bible. And he started reading John's Gospel. And Tim was fascinated by what he read about Jesus. And a couple of days later, Tim again happened to overhear Rupert inviting somebody else to these Christian Union talks. Now, Rupert didn't know Tim that well. But Tim piped up. He said, can I come along to this talk? I'd love to hear what they've got to say. So Tim, the architect went to this Christian talk with Rupert the Christian. 
And they didn't talk much about it afterwards. And Rupert didn't think much more of it. But the next day, Tim comes up to Rupert in the student bar. He says, by the way, Rupert, I've, I prayed that prayer that the speaker prayed at the end of his talk. I've become a Christian. And Rupert nearly fell off his bastard. And the following term at the graduation dinner, Tim stood up in front of the entire year. The cool, druggy architect turned to the cool, Christian architect. And in front of his entire year at university, Tim spoke of how Jesus Christ had changed his life. And you know now it's 22 years later, and Tim the architect is a vicar in Australia, and he's also my brother-in-law. Married to my wife's twin sister. And the second person I want to tell you about is someone in our church, Holy Trinity Clapham. And her name's Marsha. Uh, there are about 500 people in HTC, so I, I don't know everyone. And I didn't know Marsha. Uh, I'd seen Marsha. I'd seen this person. I didn't know her name. And I'd seen who this person was. I could see she was young. She was in her late 20s, maybe early 30s. I could see she was black. I could see she was visually impaired. But I didn't know her. I didn't know that this person who I had seen was called Marsha. Then a couple of months ago, as you know, it was the general election, which was an interesting time in all sorts of ways. And a few weeks before the election, I saw the name in the media, Marsha de Cordova, as one of the candidates for election to be Member of Parliament for Battersea. And I thought, I'm sure I know that name. And I looked on our church database, and sure enough, Marsha de Cordova was in our church database. And I did a bit of Google search, as one does, and matched the name to the face. And those of you that have a good political memory will know that when the general election was a couple of months ago, Marsha, amazingly, was elected MP for Battersea, with a huge swing away from the previous MP and to her. And I interviewed Marsha in church the following Sunday. And it was wonderful what she said. She said as she set out, she didn't expect to win. But then over time, there was more and more support. And when I asked her this question, I said to her, what is your desire as a Christian who is now an MP? And this is what she said. She said, I want to be a great representative of all my constituents in Parliament. But even more than that, I want to be a great representative of Jesus Christ in Parliament too. See, Marsha and Rupert, two very different people, but united by this, a desire to represent Jesus to the world in the spheres that they both find themselves in. A desire to be people of integrity, be it in the student bar or the Houses of Parliament. Both of them motivated by Jesus and both empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the simple question for each one of us this evening is will you and I join them in that desire? Will you join them in that desire for Christ is all? And Christ is in all. Let's close our eyes. And let's ask 
the Holy Spirit to come and continue to work amongst us. We say, come Holy Spirit. Come and continue to minister to each us. Come and work in us and amongst us. And just in the quietness, in the stillness, just allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. He often works to to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. How has God been speaking to you by his Spirit as we've been looking at his word? What is that one thing that he's speaking into your life tonight?